Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. I'm in Seattle. Tiffany is in Rome. And I'm opening a book right now, if you can hear me fluffing the pages, because I've been reading a book and in it are several notions I thought would make great shows, but we're going to tackle one of them today. The book is called The Victorian and the Romantic, A Memoir, A Love Story, and a Friendship Across Time by Nell Stevens. Now, if you're in Europe and you end up thinking this book sounds interesting, in Europe it's called Mrs. Gaskell and Me, so two different titles, okay? <laughs> but anyway, the conceit of the book is that it's a, it's a modern-day memoir, but it's written by a woman who's getting her PhD in literary scholarship, and she's studying people in the Victorian times, a group of artists who are gathered in specifically this period of time when they're all gathered in Rome together. And some of them live in Rome. Her favorite, Mrs. Gaskell, as you might guess from the other title, is only visiting Rome for a short period of time. She's only there for three months of her entire life. And so she's sort of looking at this period of time and what it meant to uh, Mrs. Gaskell to be there at that time with all these other artists. So that's the conceit of the book. And you're jumping back and forth from the perspective of Mrs. Gaskell in her time there and the current modern day when this woman's researching these people. So, if that makes sense. Yes. So, but I'm, but I'm kind of trying to figure out who's the romantic. If Mrs. Gaskell is the Victorian, who's the romantic? The romantic is our our memoirist because she's all, oh, okay. She's writing not only about her love for Mrs. Gaskell and these people and their their the way that they're experienced in the world back then. She's also in the midst of trying to sort out a personal relationship that she's having with a guy. I see. So, mm -hmm. romantic in a more personal sense as opposed to the time period of the romantics. Yeah, but I think it's supposed to kind of hearken into that, as I hit my mic, hearken into that bigger question of romanticism as artistic thought. I think she's also sort of touching on that a little bit, but yes, I think she's the romantic. I can't tell if she likes this title. She's British, so this is not the title that she would have given the book, I'm assuming. Uh, this I is like something it. that American I, I prefer, titles- I prefer the American title, I gotta say. I do too, I think it's much better. But I found this in one of Seattle's little free libraries, which, Dang. do you have that kind of thing around Rome? Oh, God, no, no. <laughs> we have we have people throwing out books and leaving them on the curb, if that can count, counts, but well, I don't think it does. Sort um, of. No. We, library culture, unfortunately, is not, whether it's actual libraries or this wonderful idea of the little free library, it hasn't really caught on here, I got to say. Yeah, for you, those of you in the rest of the world that don't know what that is, people basically build like little tiny boxes in front of their homes here in the states and they'll put books that they're done reading out there and you can take them as you walk around the neighborhood and you're supposed to put some in and I do because I get a lot of free books but that's the idea it's sort of like a take a book leave a book idea and it kind of as far as I know has spread across the nation but they are everywhere in Seattle everywhere and I know hmm. where all of them are and I know which people have better books so I'm, <laughs> I'm paying attention <laughs> but anyway you here, should make one Katie I should make one and I've thought about it but I don't know how to build one <laughs> that's my main <laughs> thing is I don't know how to make it and actually what it is more than that is even if I know how to make it which how can, hard can it be to nail some boards together not very hard I don't know how to sink it into the cement in front of my home ah I'm guessing you need a yard. 
like a front yard. Yeah, I have a parking strip, and a lot of people <laughs> stick them there, you know? I have a front yeah. yard, but it's not at street level, so that would be a little okay. weird. But anyway, uh -huh. all right, so here's the notion that I thought we could comment on. So our character back in the past, Mrs. Gaskell, is about to leave Rome. Her time is coming to, to a rapid, rapid end. And she talk, she's talked earlier about how much she does not like a portrait of one of your favorite characters of Rome history. Tiffany, who's your favorite character? <laughs> well, impossible to say my favorite. Well, Caravaggio, obviously. Right. But I know <laughs> who you're talking about. And it is Beatrice Cenci, who is another one of my... Um, Yes, definitely my one of my favorite historical figures. Yes, sure. and a great ghost story, which we've talked about in Halloween episodes. Anyway, so she doesn't like this portrait, and yet she finds it sort of captivating. The portrait is by uh, Guido Rene, and if you were to Google her name, this portrait's going to pop right up. She's looking over her back shoulder at the viewer. It's like the first hit. Like, yeah, it's um, one of the few. There's only maybe two or three portraits done of Beatrice Cenci. I think they're all done posthumously. Yes. Um, and this one is the most famous for sure. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that it lives, at least nowadays, in Palazzo Barberini. It does. And in fact, that's where they are when they're there looking at this ah. portrait. So she talks about how she is there at Palazzo Barberini and she's looking at this portrait again and she's always found it depressing but now it's in the final day or two of her being in Rome and this is the description she says the girl's red eyes stare hollowly out of the canvas and you insisted again that you thought it was depressing more depressing than ever today you thought because tomorrow you were leaving and you would never see it again and I just wrote that down. And then I had this little piece of notepaper where I was writing down everything that this book was sparking in me. And what I wrote in response to that was Rome and the luxury of being able to revisit a painting. The bigger topic, of course, being this larger notion of whether you like a painting or not, or whether you love a thing or not, when you're living in a place like Rome and this painting just exists at Palazzo Barberini, anytime you want to see it, you can just go in and see it. Pay your way. You know where it is. You can go look at it. Even more so in Rome, as you know, and we've talked about, there are paint beautiful paintings, works by masters just sitting in churches for free. And you can just pop in and see them. And I was just tickled by this notion of, of yeah, that loss that I certainly recognize is that when you no longer live in a place, you just can't do that anymore. Now, in the case of this woman, uh, historically, she leaves Rome, and as much as it has affected her life and as much as she'd like to return, she never goes back for the rest of her life. So this three months is really, truly, this is the last time that she sees this painting in person and sees it in all, at all, because, you know, she can't just Google that image like maybe some of you just did. No, of so. course. But I don't know. I mean, I just thought there's something there that's a bigger topic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I talk about that, what do you think of you live in Rome? So and, it, and right. of course, well, this applies I mean, to places, not just Rome. This applies to a lot of places. But, you know, Rome yeah, is the uh, probably Rome most. I mean, I would say Rome more than anywhere else in the world. Some people might say Paris is just as much uh, of a city like that. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm skeptical. But, you know, I, yeah. I get I get what you're saying. There's tons of amazing art in Rome and in many 
European cities particularly, especially if you're like, you know, talking about European art. Just um, the other day, Claudia and I were taking a walk and going to have a glass of wine and just sort of wandering around the city for a couple of hours. And I said, oh, let's, let's go. We just were passing by Santa Agostina. I was like, let's go in and see the Madonna of the Pilgrims because, or the Madonna of Loreto by Caravaggio, because it's my favorite Caravaggio. And I just wanted to look at it. And I've, I mean, I've seen that painting so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, also because I regularly do Caravaggio tours now. So I go in there when I'm leading tours and I just don't get sick of it though. And I, and I, I can't walk unless I'm in a hurry, you know, I don't walk past that church without going in and looking at it. Same with San Luigi dei Francesi. And yes, it is an enormous privilege. And it's so funny because I just wrote on our Instagram page this past week, I, I posted the picture that I took in there and I wrote, you know, what is your favorite work of art and how many times have you been able to see it? Mm. And to be honest, Katie, I never get very many comments. Uh, I always ask questions and I put them out there. Few people respond. A couple people, I think one person responded with a work of art that she's seen. I think she said six times. But I would guess it's more common that maybe you've seen it once or twice. I bet there are mm-hmm. people out there who their favorite painting they've never even seen in person. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely am aware that it's a privilege that I can see some of my favorite art and just some amazing art in general, anytime I want. Uh, I've never really thought about, yeah, the idea of like, oh, if if and when I leave Rome, I, you know, I won't be able to see it again. Yeah. I guess I have such a strong connection with this city and also through, you know, through my husband's family that I know that I'll often come back here. There's never going to be a time when I'm like, I'm never going to Rome again. It's just not going to happen. Even if I move away, I'll always come back here frequently. But I do think about, you know, Claudio, you made me think about him because he works inside the Vatican museums and mm-hmm. he has been inside the Sistine Chapel. I mean, I don't even want to estimate how many numbers, thousands, thousands and thousands of times he's been inside the Sistine Chapel. And, you know, he doesn't think anything of it right now. You know, he's working. So he's not sitting up and gazing at the ceiling, although he does often, especially if it's a slow day, if it's a quiet day, and he's maybe in a part of the museum that's not as frequented and it's a little bit off the beaten track because it's such a huge museum. Sometimes he will deliberately find a work of art and look it up and study it and learn something about it. So it's not like he's completely oblivious to the, to the art, but you know, there's only so many times you can stare a good, you know, 10, 15 minutes and stare up at the, at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. However, I wonder when he leaves that job, if he will think, oh, you know, I, I miss seeing that. Yeah. I miss seeing that work of art. Yeah. I Total side note. I just, as you were talking, I thought curiously, since he spent so much time, basically, he basically spends all day long around art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some and some of, of the greatest art in the world. Yeah. I mean, I just thought, is there anything personally that he's told you that like is is something that everyone considers a masterpiece that he doesn't really like? I don't know that there's anything that would fit that description, although we were talking just the other day, like I said, when we were in Santa Agostino, there's a painting by Raphael there that's very, very much like Michelangelo. It's very influenced by Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And he and he said, um, you know, I don't understand why Raphael changed his style to emulate Michelangelo. It was so much his style was so much better before and he was such a superior painter to Michelangelo you know not to dis 
credit Michelangelo, he was a genius, a genius sculptor and a genius architect. But as a painter, Raphael was so much superior. And a lot of people don't, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't think that way or they don't take that, you know, they just think, okay, Michelangelo is the best. That's what everybody says. So Michelangelo's the best. So he must just, be. You know, yeah. <laughs> so he must be. And yeah. a lot of people skip the Raphael rooms mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I, you know, people are tired. I understand it's crowded. It's hot. It's, it's a lot. So I don't blame anybody for skipping the Raphael rooms, but arguably the art in the Raphael rooms is of such a higher quality than the paintings in the Sistine Chapel, at least the ones on the ceiling, these Michelangelo's. So that was an interesting comment. Um, and yeah. he spends a lot of time around both Raphael and Michelangelo paintings, particularly the pre, the paintings Raphael did before he changed his style to emulate Michelangelo. Yeah. I, like on another total side note, are we ever going to get back to the topic? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I have a sculptor friend here He's an amazing artist. If you're in Seattle, I think he has a show coming up in April or May. His name is Tony Angel. He's just the most incredible sculptor of wildlife. I love his stuff. I cannot even express to you. I'm lucky enough to own a little tiny thing that he made. And I met him for lunch the other day and I was asking him, what would you make of the fact that if you made the Pieta in your early 20s, you know what would you make of yourself and he did not take my bait of a of my bigger existential question instead he he talked about how they had apprenticeships and he would have had these masters that he was working under and then he said in in that marble that marble that was from italy which he told me the name of it now i don't remember maybe you know carrera probably there you are probably and he and he just said it's just so great to work with it's so malleable. It's just so, uh, like, you can do such delicate things with it. I loved the answer, even though it wasn't what I was going for, because I'm like, this man knows what it's like to work in different kinds of marble and stone, a thing that I will never know, you know, so that when he looks at something like the Pieta, he knows, like, what it's like to have your hands on such a thing and try to be taking pieces of it off. And he also said, well, and I'm sure he had a lot of people who were helping. Yeah. Okay. That's it. I yeah I can't I can't agree there. Well, maybe he didn't say a lot, but he said he probably a had lot of, some apprentices that were of, lending a hand, you know. So yeah, I mean, Michelangelo was famously a loner, and he did not generally work with apprentices. Bernini did. Mm-hmm. Bernini, another great sculptor, he had a lot of the detail work in his uh, his sculptures, like the Apollo and Daphne, was done by technical assistants. I'm not going to say Michelangelo never had an, had any assistance, but he was he was definitely the kind of person who did all his own. You know, he he was a perfectionist. He wanted to do his own stuff. Yeah. But secondly, like yes, that marble is incredible to work with. But any sculptor in Italy had access to that. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's I mean, you know you you can't say Michelangelo's genius is down to the marble. No, I don't think he was saying that. I was think he was just sort of almost reminiscing about how great it is when you get to work with that kind of stone because he works with so many different types of stone. Um, yeah, yeah. It was more just like, oh yes, to be able to use you know such materials <laughs> to create such a thing. You know. So what was the answer that you were hoping to get that you were baiting him on? No, I didn't really know. I was just sort of like, as a man who spent your whole life carving giant pieces of stone into beautiful creatures, what do you make of him making the Pieta that young? Is it remarkable? Is it not unheard of? You know, I, I just, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to see what he had to say, and I guess. That's what he had to say about it. But going back to the topic at hand, <laughs> um, 
I do think that it's not like this co concept is is a larger concept than just art, of course. I think it can be said for any place that you are. There are these things that you take for granted that you can always see. And then if you were to leave, you can't see them anymore on a regular basis. And I was trying to think, like, what would this be for Seattle? Because we don't have, I mean, we have works of art around, certainly, modern sculptures and all sorts of stuff. But I was thinking, you know, in our museum, for instance, there is one painting that's always there that I like quite a bit, but a lot of the things in the museum are constantly rotating. So it's not like mm -hmm. I can go to Palazzo Barberini and expect to see the same stuff, you know. It's constantly mm -hmm. changing based on what shows they are hosting. And so what came to mind for me was actually the expansive view over the water, in particular, I was remembering actually before I moved to Rome, so when I'm preparing to leave here, and I was living in a neighborhood named called Ballard, and Ballard has a hill called Sunset Hill that's basically just a giant bluff that hangs out over the water. And if you look down, you can see a marina where people have sailboats, and you can hear the seals barking because they like to sit on the berm that keeps the boats from rocking. And you can just see this expanse of the Olympic mountains in the distance and water in front of it. And, you know, Seattle is surrounded by islands that people live on. And so you can see all these islands and the ferries moving around and such uh, ferries for people to put their cars on boats. Anyway, you get the idea. Anyway, it's this <laughs> expansive view that just kind of feels like from here, I could go out into the full world. And I do remember standing up there and thinking, this might be what I miss the most, this feeling of being on the precipice of the world. And I will still say, now that I live here again, um, I still would say that of the different places I've lived, I have a tendency to prefer, in general, living not in a river town, but in a town that has this expansive view. San Francisco's similar, um, but like our neighbor to the south where people say, well, if I'm not going to live in Seattle, maybe I'll live in Portland. Portland, Oregon is a big option for people from here. Portland's a river city. Seattle's on the Puget Sound. So they are they do feel different. There's a closed-inness that river places have that Seattle doesn't have. And I think mm -hmm. that that is the quintessential thing that uh, I miss from here when I'm not here. I agree 100%. I was thinking the same thing when you were talking about what is Seattle's thing, and I was thinking about all the nature. Yeah, it's certainly not the Space Needle, which no. I know is, <laughs> for some of you is the only thing you know about Seattle. Well, that's a that's there is there's the land there's there are landmarks, and then there are there are the masterpieces, you know. And I, everyone knows that the, the most famous landmark of Seattle is the Space Needle, but most people, I would guess, would not consider it a masterpiece. Whereas I do believe that the Olympic mountains and the Puget Sound and the and the evergreen trees in Seattle, that is a true masterpiece of nature. Yes, it really is. And just actually last weekend, our old intern, Estrella Gomez, was here. Oh, oh was she? Uh, yes, along with her new husband, new-ish husband, Jared. And we all went out for lunch and they came. They got a, they got a little bit of sun. But, you know, they were also here. They got they got just one day of just terrible weather. And here they're trying to walk around and experience what Seattle is like. And they're just getting poured on. And I kid you not, it even snowed for a time during that day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which is just so unusual. Um, and I was trying to describe to them what I wish everybody 
could come to Seattle and see is what the city is like when there's a giant mountain. Now, we are completely surrounded by mountains. Any direction you look, you'll see mountains. So if you're a mountain person, <laughs> get, get over here. But we have one giant mountain called Mount Rainier. Yes, we do. That oh, hovers yes. over the city like Mount Kilimanjaro or something. And or like Mount Olympus. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, <laughs> the clouds are around it. It looks like it's on another... It looks like it's in the heavens. Yes, and it it's, sometimes looks like it's it's not it's not on the earth. Yeah, that's and how high it is. And it's huge. <laughs> it's just a big mountain. But the weird thing about Seattle is you can't see it much of the time because it's so gray. And so if the clouds come down, you can't see this mountain. So when you visit, you might miss it. But when it's out, mm. and that's what oh. people say when it's a nice day, the mountain's out. When it's out, it's just almost otherworldly. And you think, what? Why does nobody come to Seattle? There is this giant mountain that hovers over this gorgeous city. And I don't know. And it's just not even on people's radar. I've never understood that, Katie. Like, I've, especially living in Italy, like, I just, the number of people who have been to Seattle is hovering around zero, in, <laughs> you know, for the people that I've met. No, for real. Like, I don't know that I've ever met someone in Italy, in all of my almost two decades living here, I don't think I've ever met an Italian person who's been there. I really don't. Hmm. Um, with the exception of our, our our old neighbors who now have moved away, sadly, I really loved them. There was this old couple and he said that his son lived in Seattle, but I don't think he'd ever, I mean, maybe he's been there, but I, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's it. I've never met the that's son. That's another thing. His son um, lived there and he still didn't go to Seattle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes they would think people think, okay, let's keep Seattle like a secret. Yeah. Um, and we've done and that's a good why job. exaggerates the, the, the badness of the weather to make it sound like it's worse than it is. I have always, always said and I'm not that I've been in every major city in the United States, but I've been to a lot and I've always said, and it's not a bias, that when the weather is beautiful, there is no more beautiful city than Seattle. There just isn't. It is, uh, I mean, as far as, not not necessarily the, the skyscrapers and stuff, but the the city as a whole yes. with all of the nature that, that it entails is, uh, is so incredibly beautiful. And I had the privilege of growing up, as you know, with Mount Rainier out my window yes that's um, right because you were oriented like perfectly to the south i forgot that yeah yeah southeast so yeah and so i saw mount rainier every day that it wasn't you know too cloudy um but i saw most day i feel like most days i could see it um but mm. maybe that's just a faulty memory um yeah i'd say so <laughs> I, when i was in college when i was in college i went with some friends to vermont mm. for a weekend and uh, it was winter time, so there was snow on the ground, and we didn't go skiing or anything. This friend of mine had a cabin, so so we went up there. And as he was driving us up there, he was from Vermont, right? And he kept pointing out the mountains, and he's like, "Look at Mount Washington," and I'm like, "Where? Where?" And I'm like, keep turning my head. I'm like, "Where is it?" He's like, "It's there." It's just a small hill, dude. What is that? That's not a mountain. <laughs> I'm like, "What is that? That's supposed to be a mountain." It's like uh, I'm tr I'm making a. a a small point. A, a, it was like not not forty five degrees. Not like I don't know what five degrees. Not flat, angle. but not forty five degrees. So yeah. no, it was, small it was small. It was yeah. It looked like a like a soft, gentle rolling hill, and I'm like, that's what you guys call mountains up here. Okay, okay. You know, well, and that's when counts. you know you have those you have those experiences when you're young, and it's sort of like you start to realize where you're from, and I mean that can happen anywhere. You know, 
depending on where you're from and what you have, what your city offers. But I definitely felt like, wow, where I come from, we got real mountains. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's the thing too, is that you start to take for granted that some people have never seen a mountain like that ever in their lives and, yeah. and never will. But back to the topic at hand. I had, I had one other thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good topic because it's just sparking all these sort of adjacent conversations. <laughs> there was one other thing, though, I wanted to ask you about before we run out of time, which was, have you ever been to a place where, I mean, my example is South Africa, and sorry to my listeners who are in South Africa, but have you ever been to a place where it just took so much to get there or whatever it was that you just, at least for South Africa, it took me 30 hours of flying time in the air, 30 what? hours of flight time what to get there. And so Oof. the whole time I was there, I almost feel like I took it in differently because the whole time I was thinking to myself, I'm never it's going to good. come back here. This is ah, like, this is it. the only time I'm going to see these things. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like I was just trying to absorb them even more. And if there was an amazing vista, I stared at it a little longer. If there was a, a creature that I had never seen before, I looked at it more mm -hmm. because I was just in that mindset of scarcity. This, mm -hmm. is the, this is the final time. This is the one and only time that I will be in this part of the world because it was just so hard to get here. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know that I've ever been to a place that far away. Uh, I don't think I have uh, far away from where I, I was living. But it reminds me again, we're going to not change the subject, but, but, but add on. It reminds on. me of Seattle. Um, <laughs> and, no, uh, just kidding. It reminds me of the time of, of, you know, the, 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 the character in your book, Mrs. Gaskell, mm -hmm. back in those days, travel was something that was, first of all, very expensive. So you did it only if you were very, very, very privileged. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it was very slow. It was very, you know, the distances were very long. Yes. And so that is why people went to Italy for three months. They, you know, people didn't go on weekend trips back in those days. Yeah. You would go on extremely long trips. And that would probably be, unless you were beyond, beyond, beyond wealthy, that would be your one experience of that place. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, we, I think, are so lucky that for the most part, with the exception of South Africa, you know, for the most part, you know, we think, okay, I'll come back here, even though it's probably most of the time it's not true. But we think that in the, in the moment we think, well, yeah, I will, I will definitely come back here one day. It's different though, than knowing that you never will. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that reminded me of a friend just the other day was telling me about, I don't remember how this person knows these people. I'm sorry. Uh, but was telling me about a friend of theirs who was going to be taking a parent who was in their nineties to Rome in the coming year because they had said the one thing they wanted to they really wanted to do again before their time on earth was over was to stand in front of the pantheon and mm. so he was just telling me that about these people who are going to make that happen for this parent get them over there one more uh. time to stand in front of the pantheon and even that is we've kind of touched on that on shows before but you know about that notion of like this will be the last time that yeah. I will, I'm going there knowing that this will be the last time that I stand in front of this. So it's similar, you know, it's just in a more modern day context, you know? Yeah. I do think that when you get to a certain age, I, at least in my experience with, with people that I've known, most people who get to that age, they're kind of like, okay with it though. 
Yeah. I don't see a lot of the nostalgia, a lot of the tragedy, like, oh my God, I can't believe I'll never see Rome again. Like, I feel like it's more, this is probably the last time and that's okay. Yeah. I've done a lot, you know, I've seen a lot. I've been here a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It Somehow it reminds me of, to just kind of bring it to a conclusion, it reminds me of, if you're in South Africa, and I know some of you are because I hear from you, uh, you have a creature there that I really liked that I'll never see again. And I don't know, how do you feel about this creature? Maybe you think of it as a ground rodent. I'm not sure. <laughs> but there's a creature there that's called a dassy. And it is this small rodent type creature, although it's not like a rat. It doesn't have the tail, but it looks like a little tiny, small, puffy. I'm trying to think of what an equivalent would be, like a bear, like a little tiny. It's very tiny. So what would it be? It'd be like a prairie dog, maybe but cuter in some ways. Anyway, and it sits in the highest elevation it can get to. So whenever you're looking around, you'll spot them, you'll sp spot them on the top of a spire. Like they'll be at like the toppest point in the mountain. You'll see this little tiny round ball and you'll think that's a dassy <laughs> up there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and they're just, they had these such a soulful feeling to me because they're just sitting there surveying the whole land these little tiny ground rodents on the top of the mountain. And I just happened to, in my kind of reverie of trying to capture everything, I was traveling with my sister and we went up to the top of Table Mountain, which is uh, above Cape Town. And there was a dassy there and it was sitting slightly below us because we were up very high. And my sister got this wonderful picture of its backside looking out over the entire expanse. <laughs> and that is the one site. There were many beautiful things about South Africa, but that is the, the site that I feel the warmest about. And I'm so glad I went there so that I became aware of the Dassey as a creature. Mm -hmm. It's not my only takeaway, but it's, uh, it's one of my favorite takeaways. So if I was in well, South I'm Africa, surprised. that would be the first thing I would be looking for. That would be my Caravaggio. I'd be trying to spot <laughs> a Dassey. <laughs> Well, I'm, I I may, I can't promise that I won't pull another topic of discussion from this book because I got kind of a list here. Her description in this book alone of what the Colosseum looked at like at night in 1857, super Ooh, cool. That is cool. Yeah. So I can't promise I'm not going to bring this book up, but just in case I don't and you're looking for something good to read, I really quite enjoyed it. So again, the title is The Victorian and the Romantic by Nell Stevens. And... All right, I guess we'll leave it there. Feel free, by the way, to tell us what the thing is in your city or your town or your place or your country that would be the thing that you would miss the most seeing if you had to walk away. And maybe we can share some of those if we get enough good ones. That would be fun. You can always write to us at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media where you can leave a comment there. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have different handles on the different sites. So just search for the Bittersweet Life podcast and you will find us. Yes, you will. And until next time, this is the Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Bye. You could sponsor this show and reach educated, curious, and compassionate listeners all over the world. Our listeners are a remarkable, diverse, and engaged group of people that I am so continually impressed by. Visit thebittersweetlife.net and click support to get the conversation started. <laughs>